0: I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Bart Elmore. He is an associate professor of environmental history and core faculty member of the Sustainability Institute at The Ohio State University. He is an award-winning author of two books, Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism, and Seed Money, Monsanto's Past and Our Food Future, both published by W. W. Norton. He also currently edits the Histories of Capitalism and the Environment book series at West Virginia University Press. Seed money, however, is the topic of our conversation today. It is a deep investigation and an eye-opening expose detailing how Monsanto came to have outsized influence over our food system. Seed Money won the 2020 J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Award from the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard and the Columbia Journalism School. Dr. Elmore also received the 2022 Dan David Prize, the largest history prize in the world. Dr. Elmore believes that it takes a good teacher, a good writer, and a good storyteller— to help others see the power of history, a discipline he believes can and should inform policy decisions, especially the ones that affect our planet. Welcome, Dr. Elmore.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You've written a terrific book, and I think what we should do is start with the title. And I actually dove into your book starting with the acknowledgments. And I learned that a friend of yours, Jesse Pappas, came up with the title, Seed Money. Tell me how and why you decided to use it.
1: Yeah, it was a very good friend of mine from Charlottesville, Virginia, which is relevant in the sense that I studied at the University of Virginia. That's where I got my PhD in history. And we were just really good friends. He was actually in the psychology program, but a great, really a, kind of one of those witty individuals. And I was obviously talking about the book ad nauseum it took me about all told maybe close to a decade to really get it all done and published and so i was talking about it a lot and jesse had a good sense of what it was all about and he actually invited me to get a beer as i remember he was kind of shaking you know he's so excited he's like i got the title for your book when he said seed money i just thought wow that's it that's the book and part of it just to end is just to say that This is a book not just about making money from seeds, but about the seed money, about the earlier corporate history of a company called Monsanto that became this huge seed seller by the end of the 20th century. I wanted to look back to the past to understand if there were connections to that deeper past, to understand how we got to the kind of GE, genetic engineering revolution in seeds in the 1990s. So it was a great title, and Jesse does deserve all the credit.
0: Well, I know that you won this tremendous prize in history. And I was reading a little bit about the prize. And one of your former professor of yours, Edward Ayers, described Seed Money as illustrating the danger of placing profit over people and how not protecting our environment from dangerous chemicals threatens the health and welfare of all of us. And I think that if I could put an umbrella over your book – this is really it. But when I was researching the history prize, I learned that many history departments are closing. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. And then your revelation about environmental history. Tell me about what environmental history is exactly.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. Because all the things you mentioned are part of that story. You know, when I went off to undergrad, I studied biochemistry, because I thought that was how you help people. I I I would become a doctor, that people would get sick. And then my goal was to try and help them get better. And as a kid, I was just always driven by that, trying to find a profession where you give back, where you do good in the world. It was the thing that made me happy. And it just took time for me to realize that there were these other disciplines, especially in the humanities, that had the same kind of power to heal, not only citizens, but heal a planet. And I really credit, credit Ed Ayers for helping me to see that. When I went to grad school at UVA, I was still trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. And he had shown me just that everyone wields history every day like a weapon sometimes. you know, it, It's used in debates in Congress where people say, oh, this is what the founders said. or It's used by doctors to figure out which vaccine to use. We've got to understand the, the past to understand how we're going to move forward. It's used by businesses to figure out what they're going to sell and how they're going to do it. And yet we think of history as like, well, I don't know, what are you going to do with a history major? You know, it's just to me, as I went through this program, realized, no, wait a minute. I mean, it's so fundamental to how we decide where we're going to go in the future. How can you figure out a sustainable economy without figuring out where you've been in the past. So I fell into this field of environmental history, which I didn't even know existed when I went to grad school. Another Ed, Ed Russell, introduced me to this field. And it really just combines environmental science with history. It's basically asking how have humans changed the natural world over time? And also how has nature, we can think of disease, we can think of weeds, we can think of other things, intervened in the course of human events to shape our history, And I was just hooked. I thought, wow, here's a field that allows us to engage with the most pressing environmental issues of our time and to do so from a deep historical perspective. I'm in and I'm sitting in my office right now. I can't think of a better job to be in. I might have a better office because history departments, as you said, are underfunded. <laughs> but, But, you know, I love this work and I love talking to people like yourself who are engaged with saying, what can we learn from the past? to be better people. That, to me, is the gift of a job.
0: Well, and I think that you discovered the key to telling history, and that is through story, as opposed to the way many of us learn history, which is memorizing a list of dates and what happened on those dates. But you give those dates and those historical events a context. And through the eyes of suffering workers— you bring us in and you have written a book that we can't put down. In fact, you had published on Twitter shortly after your book was published, and this was in October of 2021. You said, I owe a great debt to so many workers featured in this book who labored in mines, handled toxic chemicals, and worked in farms that made our food. I honor them today. Many of these people are not alive to see this book in print, some having lost their lives doing dirty jobs that wrecked their bodies, but their stories captured in court are what you have brought to us in this book. And thank you for making this real.
1: Yeah, I feel that. I go back to Ed Ayers. He told me that years ago. He's like, these are their stories, you know, when you're talking about your historical actors and the people that are in your book. And even as you say that right now, I think about that. I think about the individuals. You you live with people's lives for eight years. right? And you feel a certain... Responsibility to get it right. I would say that that was probably the most stressful part of writing a book like this. Was wondering, did I get it right? Did I represent the people in this book well? And I mean that on all sides. We certainly the workers. I cared a great deal about that, but I also cared about the executives that I talked to inside Monsanto who wanted to convey to me that they believed that they were doing the right thing when they were doing whatever it might be inside the company, and I tried. And I think my training in history has always been to tell a human story at every level, to try and be fair to the people that I was writing about and to not create stock evil villains and heroes, but to tell what is more accurate about the past, which is sometimes good people who make mistakes or sometimes bad people who make unethical choices and they need to be called out. So we see both of those stories in the book. And um, that was important to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think we see stories being used against us, too, with more public relations firms grabbing onto the notion of good story is the way you sell anything. But I think it's up to us and I think it's up to historians in particular to teach us media literacy skills and how to separate disinformation from the truth. And I just think your book is really an important read on so many levels. And I know that you weren't intending to go out and write this story, but it was through your Coca-Cola research that you discovered Monsanto's role in providing one of the key ingredients to Coca-Cola. Tell me how you were allowed access to this archival information, which was stored at Washington University in St. Louis. And I want to know how Washington University was the place where this information was stored.
1: Yeah, I was as stunned, Linda, as you are as even saying it right now. I, I couldn't believe it because I, my first book was my dissertation. It was a history of Coca-Cola and looking at its environmental impact around the world, I looked at each ingredient that went into Coca-Cola You can think of the table of contents as the ingredient list on the back of a Coke can. So I looked at sugar and figured out where where did this come from and what was the impact Coke had on sugar-producing places. And, you know, went down the line until I got to caffeine. And I couldn't figure out where Coke got its caffeine from. And it turned out that it was this little company in St. Louis called Monsanto. And that's what led me. To St. Louis. I was not intending, as you said, to write about Monsanto, but I was trying to figure out how Coke got its caffeine. And because Monsanto was one of Coke's chief caffeine suppliers back in the early 1900s, I went to see if I could get access to records. I had been denied access to Coca Cola's records, and that's the typical experience for business historians in the United States, especially. Most corporate archives are closed to a lot of researchers, or just there's limited access. And that's what I was expecting but i reached out to monsanto and they had donated a bunch of boxes hundreds of boxes of their corporate materials to washu in st louis and you had to get permission even though it was in the washington university collection to use it and monsanto gave me the access they said sure go look at it so i knew going in when you get access to something like that that it had been kind of cleaned that this was a in some ways an archive that only told part of the story. You're not going to find documents that detail the horrors of Agent Orange or PCBs or anything like that in many of these records. But what I knew as a historian is that it was still a treasure trove because it was going to be a way to triangulate to places, to names, to to executives that I could then leave the archives with these documents and then see if I can track down these trails to these stories that ultimately led to things like Roundup, Dicamba, and these other things that I talk about in the book. And so it was vital to writing this book, having that base. It included, for example, the records of Edgar Queenie and John Queenie, the father and son who ran the company in the early 20th century. I got to know so much about these individuals. And, and again, trying to tell a human story, figured out how many times they liked to shave what type of martini they liked, how they liked their martini. And you can say, well, that seems excessive, and why do you need to know that? But for me, that was vital. I wanted to know these folks. I wanted to know who I was writing about. So those records were really critical. And to a degree, I'm still not quite sure why they gave me access, other than to say that I think they thought that these were clean records, You know, that they're, the documents that might be more damning had been removed from those records. But nevertheless, as I said, you can triangulate if you're an experienced historian to these bigger stories.
0: I don't think that the files might have had as clean a going through as maybe Monsanto would have liked, only because of some of the personal emails that you were able to capture. So let's take, for example, PCBs. I mean, I think most of us know Monsanto from GMOs and Roundup. That's what Monsanto was most recently famous for. But the PCB story is important. And the phosphate mining is important. The understanding of where these different chemicals that they produced are in history. So with regard to PCBs, the inside information was that Monsanto knew that PCBs were dangerous. But they had two choices. One was to stop producing them, which would have been the best route to go if we were just concerned with our environment and public health. But they had to focus on profit, so the second choice was just sell the heck out of them and just wait for everything to collapse later on, which is what they ended up doing. But that's the kind of critical information that you were able to get from the archives that I would have thought would have been removed.
1: Yeah, So, and this is a great point, Melinda. So some of the documents came from the archives, but that particular document, that was a 1969 confidential document. And just in case your listeners were wondering if you were paraphrasing, you weren't. This is a 1969 document where the executive sitting there, and this is a handwritten note on this document. They know, as you say at this moment, that PCBs are very toxic, that they're a global contaminant. Monsanto was the only producer of this chemical in the United States. And it was used in almost everything. It was an insulating material that was used kind of as a fire retardant material on artificial Christmas trees and chew polish. It was in the lining of our pools. It was in the lining of silos containing food. It was in the cardboard paper and cereal. So when we think about a global chemical problem, we're talking about Roundup and herbicides later in the story, but really this was of a global scale. And they saw it as a existential threat. And in that 1969 confidential meeting, you see this executive basically saying, yeah, maybe we should get out of the business. Maybe that's one of the alternatives. And then he writes down the second alternative. And he says, no, maybe we should just sell the hell out of it as long as we possibly can and do nothing else. That's a full quote. And that's a moment where, as I said, my job was not only to tell a human story, but to also document times where when did they know what they knew? Cuz that's part of I think being a good historian is companies will say, "Well, we didn't know it was toxic then." Or we didn't know it was bad. Well, this is a document that showed quite clearly that they knew, and not only that, but they were maybe strategizing about how they could sell as much of it as they could. That seemed pretty damning. But that document came from a court case actually. It was a discovery document. And I should say that my father was a lawyer. I had had an interest in going to law school. I'd worked as a, with the public defenders in DeKalb County in Georgia. And so for me, as I said, triangulating out from the archives, I was able to go to these court cases in different places and find documents that had been released in in various court cases that were really critical to the story. In that case, in that particular document, I would also say a shout out to my colleague Ellen Spears at the University of Alabama, who had also seen that document, written a great book about PCBs. It's called Baptized in PCBs. For anyone who's interested in the full story of just PCBs, it's an amazing book. But that was actually housed in the Chemical Industry Archives, which was basically an archives that was compiled of all these different discovery documents related to PCBs and some other chemicals. I think that site is now gone, but I was able to publish this actual document in its full form in the book. And so if anyone wants to actually see that document, you can see it in the middle of of Seed Money. But yeah, so I would say that I was kind of doing two things. I was being a historian, but also kind of a journalist. I'd be sitting in the archives, and then I'd hit a kind of dead end, and then I'd have to branch out and use all these other skills, including going to trials. I mean, I sat in trials to get documents that I might not otherwise have had. And it really felt like it paid off when I was able to kind of weave these together in the book in a way that hopefully maintained a kind of narrative flow so that people could follow the story as we go along. But yes, that document to me was one of those moments, right, where you are just kind of jaw drops when you read it and see, see it as a handwritten note. The humanity of that and kind of seeing that there's this person who's thinking this is a possibility, that was a moment I needed to call out as unethical and to say, here's this corporate culture that, as you said, in this moment, it's very clear, is considering putting profits before people. And that, that kind of culture we can see in other moments in the history as well.
0: Right. We've got to take a break because we're halfway through, and I need to remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Dr. Bart Elmore. He is an associate professor of environmental history at The Ohio State University. We are talking about his book titled Seed Money, Monsanto's Past and Our Food Future. So I'm very interested in the public relations efforts that Monsanto has gone through to tell their story Their story being that their products are going to feed the world and that with climate change, their genetic engineering technology is going to make it so we've got drought-resistant crops. But really, my understanding is that most of Monsanto's genetically engineered crops are really engineered to withstand spraying of herbicides and an increasing number of herbicides. And being that we both live in the Midwest, we see what's happening. We see more and more acres of corn and soy taking over more biodiverse cropping systems. And if you drive through certainly my rural state, you can often get a whiff of the toxic chemicals that are being sprayed on these crops. So it's this public relations story about feeding the world. And I know that you had a graduate student, I believe his name was Matthew Bonner, going to St. Louis and looking at public affairs documents. How did he gain access to those?
1: Well, again, there's a good example of, I said that these archives were clean, but then the truth is you'd still find every now and then in in the records a gem or two that you were like kind of stunned by. This was a student at Ohio State. And again, it's always a pleasure to talk to somebody who reads that closely because this was a unique document that he was able to find. So thanks for highlighting it, Melinda. But he finds this document that was basically acknowledging that Monsanto would ghostwrite various scientific pieces or op-eds to support a particular stance that the company had And you see this again in other situations regarding glyphosate and other things where there's discussions of ghostwriting documents. And there's even exchanges internally between some of the scientists. And I thought this was important to point out, you know, that we think of Monsanto as this monolith. But you can see pushback sometimes from scientists literally saying, that's called ghostwriting. It's unethical and I won't do it. And yet you see this evidence pretty clear coming out that this was just standard behavior to try and ghostwrite these documents. And just for anyone ghostwriting, it sounds like what it is. It's just, you know, where you have scientists or op-ed writers writing things as if they're independent people working on their own, but in fact, they're connected to Monsanto in some form or fashion. And so I like to think in the book that you kind of get to sense that Monsanto wanted to become a gatekeeper of information. That, to me, was a critical thing that this company wanted to do over time and they did that not only by courting scientists maybe even ghostwriting these pieces and various things influencing the scientific literature but they also did so in terms of forming close partnerships with public universities i know you're in missouri and and i could probably have filed a foia for the university of missouri and found the same thing but i'm in ohio and filed a foia freedom of information act request with Ohio State University to figure out where Monsanto's money was going. And it's not surprising that there was heavy funding from Monsanto for various studies on some of the chemicals that we might talk about, dicamba, for example, and others. And you just get this sense when you're looking at those documents of how wrong this is, right, that a fifth grader could tell you this is like the fox watching the hen house. You don't have the companies whose products are being assessed for their efficacy and health effects funding the science at a public university if you want to create a semblance of integrity. Even if the science is done, and I think the scientists I met, for example, a lot of them had incredible integrity. But at the very least, it it just creates that sense of corruption that makes it so that what are you supposed to trust? And I think in an era where we're having that kind of troubles today and discussions about a post-fact world we sometimes live in where people... You know, There is no truth, that kind of thing. This is deeply problematic. And I think one of the big takeaways, I appreciate having an opportunity to talk about it with a broad audience, one of the big takeaways of the book is that we have to have firmer firewalls between the companies who are being regulated and the regulators that are doing the regulating. And that includes our public universities that have been underfunded for so long and that have become deeply dependent on companies for funding in order to basically make their budget and pay their salaries that's a world that's ripe for corruption and it's ripe for problems. And I think we can see a a way out of that by, again, going back to a world in which that wasn't the case. It wasn't always that way.
0: It's a great vote for public funding our public institutions. Also, you mentioned that Monsanto tried to block university access by failing to let them do research on some of these herbicides. So how are we supposed to know the full impact of say, okay, we used glyphosate, farmers liked it, it was easy, but farmers knew that weeds were going to develop resistance. So now we have new traits with dicamba, which is something that keeps me up at night because of drift issues. And to deny a university researcher access, which was laughed at by Monsanto, to refuse a researcher to get to the truth is just wrong.
1: Right. And just because I assume no knowledge whenever I talk about these things, just to walk us through what happened 1996, introduction of Roundup ready crops, these genetically engineered crops that can tolerate heavy spraying of Roundup throughout the growing season, kills all your weeds if you're a farmer, but keeps your crops alive. This sounded like an amazing technology. So many farmers adopt it for cotton, soybeans, corn, the major commodity crops. It was almost overnight. Within a decade, you see this widespread adoption. The argument at the time was you can spray glyphosate and that's all you need, Roundup. You don't need anything else. And of course, that proved to be false. There were even scientific studies produced by Monsanto saying that Roundup in these quantities would never produce weed resistance. And folks I spoke to here at Ohio State remember those days. The weed scientists here would say, we knew this was crazy. You don't bet against nature. Of course, if you spray that much Roundup, you're going to start seeing weeds developing resistance. And that's exactly what happened. In the early 2000s, weeds started developing resistance. The gig was kind of up. I mean, after a while, they kept trying to say it's not happening. They even went into greenhouses here at Ohio State telling our weed scientists that they didn't know what they were doing when they were publishing studies saying, hey, There's weed resistance. They were kind of bullying our scientists here. And yet, over time, the gig is up. I mean, at some point, Roundup is not as effective because weeds have developed resistance. And so you're right. What's happened now is we have a system where there's these new genetically engineered seeds that are conferring tolerance to a bunch of different herbicides. You now need dicamba and Roundup to kill your weeds because a lot of weeds don't respond to Roundup. So we're going to create a seed that has these two tolerances. And that might be familiar to everybody, but I feel like walking folks through that is really important because that's where we're at. We're at a time where we're seeing new seeds being introduced that have five herbicide tolerances. We're not reducing our pesticide dependence. It's increasing over time. As I say in the book, it's like the future of agriculture that we're being promised is actually our past. We're going back to 2,4-D, a chemical that's from the 1940s dicamba a chemical introduced in the 1960s is making a huge comeback as farmers are buying these new seeds that have these resistances to these older chemicals and so yeah we're in a position where this is really problematic and you're right you can see in the evidence that dicamba for example a dangerous compound because it can drift in hot temperatures it moves off target it can hit crops nearby and harm them if you don't have dicamba tolerant crops And in the case of peach farmers, there's no option for a dicamba-tolerant peach. They're going to get hit and damaged. And the question was, I had when I was looking at this, as you said, is did they know this? I mean, what did they know and what did they do to try and prevent this? And the evidence that was leaked in the Bader Farms trial was just so damning. Not only did they knew dicamba would drift when sprayed on these new genetically engineered crops that tolerate dicamba, But they thought it would be a selling opportunity. They even have in a confidential document that I have in the book, they said that one of the best ways to sell these new dicamba-tolerant crops is to pitch them as protection from your neighbor. To tell farmers, in other words, that if you don't buy these new seeds, you might get hit by that dicamba drift, which, by the way, is being caused by our system. So, yeah, it was a pretty dark series of documents, and it reminded me a lot of that PCB moment where you'd see joking and jesting on these emails back and forth. Aha, you know, like people aren't going to buy dicamba and spray it in the hot seasons even though we put a sticker that says, please don't do this. They knew that it was going to be sprayed in hot temperatures and they knew it was going to drift. Yeah. And they saw it as a sales opportunity. And the most damning thing is they wrote about it and they exchanged emails about it. Right. That to me was one of those moments, again, where I felt as a historian I had an obligation to write that down and and say, this is where we're at. And if we want a better future... We have to take more ownership over our ag system instead of allowing this to happen.
0: Exactly. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. So we are going to have to ask our listeners to fill in all the many blanks by getting a copy of your excellent book, Seed Money, Monsanto's Past and Our Food Future. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Bart Elmore. Thank you. Thanks so
1: much.